Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. How can hydrogen help deliver the things we need most? At Chevron, we're exploring ways to expand our hydrogen fuel capabilities to help make heavy-duty transportation lower carbon. And we're working with vehicle makers and commercial truck fleet operators to help scale the hydrogen fuel industry. Because it's only human to believe innovation can help deliver a brighter future. Learn more at chevron.com slash hydrogen. Hello and welcome to the PR Week. PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show, not a busy week. And uh, heading towards winter, maybe. Maybe this weekend, started to uh, maybe turn off the air conditioning and uh, save on a few energy bills, eh, Frank? That's right. Frank Washcook is here, our executive editor, our normal co-host, and uh, superstar of the show, I think. I, I wouldn't go that far, but thanks for having me on. That's I appreciate a, it. Always a pleasure. And we're really delighted to be joined by Craig Manassian, who's the Chief Content Communications and Marketing Officer at the Clinton Foundation. So, Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Frank. And thank you for telling me that winter is coming. I wasn't ready, but uh, I guess it's inevitable. It's just, it was the first time I turned off the aircon, which was very welcome with energy bills as, as they are at the moment. But uh, winter is coming. That means lots of different things, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, we'll get, I'm sure we'll get a few more good warm days. So we're going to chat to Craig. Clinton Global Initiative back last week after a six-year delay. So that was good to see it back, and uh, we'll find out how it went. It's about Edelman. It's 70th anniversary, and it's breached a billion dollars in revenues. Incredible achievement. We did a newsmaker profile of Intel's CCO, Tara Smith, so we'll talk about that. General Motors had a bit of a kerfuffle around some internal comms about return to the office on Friday. We'll see how we think they handled that. Visa has hired AT&T's head of communications after a very short time in that role. And Scott Farrell, Golan's Scott Farrell, is retiring. Penta Public Affairs Consortium is launching lots of news to talk about. But Craig, let's talk to you first. It was uh, the first time back for six years uh, with the Clinton Global Initiative. I guess some people thought we might not see it again. So first of all, tell us how it went and what was the sort of reasoning behind coming back? Well, it felt great to be back. And the enthusiasm, the response from members, from corporate partners, from the media, from participants was really heartening and welcome. I want to thank all of you for joining Hillary, Chelsea, our staff, and me in trying to recreate what I think of as the spirit of CGI. That through incredible work by many of you and others over the last many years has improved the lives of millions of people. You know, it's, you recall, we concluded it in 2016 in advance of the presidential election, in part because we didn't even want the perception of a conflict of interest for Secretary Clinton, should she have won. But the need and the need for collaboration and working together never went away. What humanity everywhere has a hard time with today is figuring out how to turn our good ideas into real changes in other people's lives. 
I think you know that in 2005, when this started, President Clinton had gone to many similar kinds of events going all the way back to Renaissance Weekend and the World Economic Forum, the Aspen Ideas Festival. And in fact, as president convened the first philanthropy summit in the White House in his second term, and he would go to these conferences and think that there were incredible ideas being put forth and incredible groupings of people coming together. And then the ideas would sort of evaporate after the sessions. And so he thought, could we do this with an action-oriented element? We call them commitments, which are simply new plans and projects to address a critical global issue. And that was essentially a requirement for participation. That and making sure that the corporate sector, the government sector, the NGO sector, and other private sector actors were together. And together, could they fill that gap between what the public sector can provide and the private sector can produce? And it worked incredibly well. And over the course of the first run, more than 3,700 of these commitments were made that are still helping 435 million people in 180 countries. So it wasn't that the need went away when we concluded it. And then the intervening years, for a number of reasons, uh, COVID and, and, and the climate yeah, for sure. uh, made it difficult. But as the president said in March when we decided to bring this back, is that there are so many interconnected threats, global health, climate, creating an inclusive economic recovery and pressing issues like refugees that needed to be addressed, now is the time to bring it back. And the response was uh, overwhelming. Yeah. And the theme was the business of how really talking about how business can fill that gap between uh, the public sector and philanthropy. It's something we talk about a lot on the PR Week podcast and on PR Week generally. But it's a difficult time, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got the midterm elections coming up, very febrile environment. You've got some sections of the population calling for an end to spending on purpose and ESG related stuff in some states. Then you've got others, states which are doubling down on it. Business has activist investors on both sides of the coin. So it's a very difficult balancing act for business as well. So how did those themes all play out during the week? And how do you think business can sort of play that important role? Well, as you noted, the, the theme of the business is how it's really catering in part to this notion that businesses have to play their part. And there are so many CEOs and boards that are. I mean, we saw the Patagonia announcement um, yeah. last week as well. So for just and, before the start of the conference, just before it? the start of the conference. So, uh, you know, I think as you see some Corporate leaders shying away because it is difficult and a challenge and turning the ship in a direction that's responsible can be difficult, um, but it's a necessary challenge and one that our experience is that most corporate leaders are embracing. And, you know, they see CGI as a as a platform in part because of of the action oriented nature. You know, they know, you know, if they want to show and prove how they are making a difference, how they're sticking to their ESG and D&I work. This is a good place to do it. And, and, it's, and it's a crowd that understands that unless you have an honest conversation about these challenges, you're not going to get everything done. And I think when they walk into that room, they're among people that say, hey, we know this is hard, but if we work together, we can get it done. Yeah. Now, um, you talk about business leaders. I think Alan Jope, Unilever CEO, was there. But the, well, I did see some coverage saying there weren't as many 
CEOs there as maybe people would have liked or as expected. Did, did, is that a fair comment? And what do you think the reason was for that? Were there fewer in town for the UN? Because you, you do dovetail your event with the UN General Assembly, which means you've got a lot of people in town who are, you know, represented at both events. What was your overall take on the, the attendance by business? Sure. I think there were a couple of that. We were very pleased, by the way, with the um, with the turnout and obviously corporate sponsors, MasterCard, um, IBM and others, uh, big participation. Unilever, you mentioned IKEA, you know, a number General Motors, others, Procter and Gamble came and participated in different ways. I think some factors that we saw from the past. One is what was this going to be? So candidly, um, you know, we announced in, in in March. That's a little bit after, obviously, budgeting season and and whatnot. And um, coming on the heels of a couple of years where corporate leaders were being held to more scrutiny for their public statements on commitments to responsibility and were they, you know, living up to it. I think there were some that were a little gun shy to get out there in public. As I as I mentioned, would CGI come back as uh with what it was? And overwhelmingly you saw in a number of the stories this real sense that the brand is back, that the platform worked, that the participation was there. So we've already heard from some of what I might call the usual suspects among the Fortune 500 that said count us in for next year. Um, and we heard some that this year said as we got closer and they saw the the caliber of the others who were participating said, you know, whatever skepticism we had, we see that this is what it used to be. In fact, if not better, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, and we're going to come. So we, you know, one, there were a few new features, you know, one overall criticism of the space, I think, has been that this idea that elite philanthropy or billionaire philanthropy, and you certainly see some of that criticism lobbied at Davos and others, does this make it the most inclusive kind of place for a corporate leader who is prioritizing inclusion as they should? And so if you look at our program, not only did you have Melinda Gates and Lorraine Powell Jobs and the head of the WHO and others, but you had climate justice activists, you had new uh, and emerging leaders, you had a real focus on local leaders because they know what actually works in their communities. And what we heard time and again from the from the corporate leaders is that is the kind of place we need. And that's the kind of group we need to both talk with and understand their needs so we can be more effective. Something we did as well on the, the corporate side, although we didn't publicize it too much, and APCO is one of our partners and helped organize this, was a corporate foundation roundtable. So BlackRock, uh, ABBEV, you name it, about 30 major fidelity, major corporate foundations who were there. And they're they're heads of those foundations and CEOs came and participated to really understand how they can be more effective. Yeah. So tell us about was the Clinton family itself. You've got Chelsea, you've got Hillary, you've got Bill. Um, was Chelsea, is Chelsea going to be taking a bigger role moving forward? Is that the sort of intention in terms of, you know, next generation? I think what's interesting about the whole families, they all have such, they have collective interest in action, but they also have areas that they really care about. You know, Chelsea is a uh, very involved in the public health space. And so she's already been actively involved. And public health is one of our driving missions with CGI and the foundation more broadly. Like most people know that uh, one of the early successes of the foundation, which continues today, started out as the Clinton HIV and AIDS initiative and now called the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which she's very involved with. So I don't think any one, uh, there's not this passing of the torch as much as they all now have the time. The president's always had the time, but secretary and 
uh, and Chelsea's already been involved, that they all see a piece of this that they feel very connected to. Is there going to be a problem in 24 if uh, Hillary decides to make a run? Can you give us an exclusive on that? <laughs> Listen, I mean, uh, I, I can tell you, um, I, uh, I would be surprised, um, but we never predict the future. But I don't, I don't think she's given any indication anywhere that she, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, she, she would run. Tell us about some of the other stuff. You got your celebs there. You got Bono uh, showing up. You had Robin Wright, Matt Damon, and others. Um, and well, after a gap of six years, you must have noticed some changes, right, in the whole environment. Do you think things have genuinely moved forward in terms of the issues like climate, like diversity, or do you think? We're still banging our heads against a bit of a brick wall and not so I know one of the big themes is action, not talk. Do you think we really have moved on in that respect? In in some respects, um, you know, I think the Biden administration doesn't get enough credit for some of the achievements they've made, climate and other health um, that have really moved the ball forward. And they've done that with with partners. I think one thing that's been interesting to us since uh, not just last six years, but since the evolution of CGI is the idea that corporate responsibility has evolved so much. I mean, there were many corporations that we worked with in 2005, 2006, 2007, who were trying to do the right thing in communities where they worked. Maybe they had, you know, manufacturing facilities somewhere and they were donating and supporting, you know, cultural and education institutions there. And over over time, not directly related to CGI, I mean, we can't take credit for it as much as, you know, sort of seeing that wave, that evolution that, that played into our programming, that they became more holistic supply chains, what customers want, you know, um, whether airlines could do something about human trafficking, whether tech companies had a different kind of responsibility, whether people with a big manufacturing footprint um, should think about decarbonization. And so, yes, from objectively, from any standpoint, those discussions have gone from, is this something we should do to let's talk about how we're doing it. Um, and that's something that came across quite, quite clearly. So I think there's been a lot of progress, Good. the reason for optimism, a lot more to do. Yeah. And just to finish, I mean, we were talking about the UN General Assembly, which was running at the same time and the Secretary General kind of has called out PR people, to be honest. Well, as a communicator, what did you think of that? Because he was sort of saying that PR people are basically enabling um, what he calls fossil fuel companies to not address climate change. And we, we, we pushed back a little bit on that because I, I don't think it was particularly fair to the PR community in general. Uh, you know, a lot of which is trying to be part of that business transformation and, and taking companies like that to the next level. What did you think of that as a, as a communicator, you know, listening to that, those sort of comments? Yeah. I, I think it was an interesting point. I think that was a case where maybe the underlying point uh, got lost in how it was conveyed. I think, and maybe I'm taking a more positive read on it, which is that communicators and the people who sit in the chief communications and marketing roles have quite a lot of sway over whether their companies and their CEOs and their boards uh, feel uh, protected and safe in continuing to make these uh, these good changes. Um, I can understand what he says about maybe giving cover to some others. And look, in all industries, people are also doing their their job. So, um, but, I, you know, look, we, we work with communicators and heads of communication across the board. And I think pretty universally, my experience is, is they really understand that it's better to be ahead of 
the curve on some of these issues, create and take advantage of of the opportunity to do the right thing, while obviously minimizing risk. I mean, that's 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 what they're. Yeah, so I think uh, comms can play a, a crucial role in business transformation if the businesses want to transform. And I guess the the UN folks are suggesting that maybe they don't think that some of those corporations do genuinely want to transform on on climate but uh, it's an interesting debate they, they may not but to, just to revisit that point for a second i think that's where communicators can also help show companies why transforming is in their best interest not only in their their customers yeah. best interest yeah speak that truth to power craig it's great to hear um, about the week sounds like it went really well so congratulations on being back we look forward to next year sounds good and we'll get your input on some of the big news stories of the day frank edelman 70 years old and it's hit a billion dollar in revenues we knew that last bit but it was good to get it confirmed wasn't it and there's a bunch of other stuff going on around the celebrations well not only that they've uh surpassed a billion dollars as of june 30 they're up to 1.06 billion a lot of interesting tidbits that come out in this story and that number one that their brand business which includes creative strategy digital social experience and purpose accounted for more than 44 percent of its worldwide revenue and that group in and of itself is more than $550 million. Also that it's creative. Op- Incredible numbers, by the way, isn't it? You yeah. Know, you sort of slide over them, but those are big billion dollars and 550. Those are really significant numbers. Yes, absolutely. Um, the agency's creative offering has grown 33% in the past year. That's up to 7% of the total revenue of the agency. Uh, they're also establishing a museum dedicated to the firm uh, and its home base of Chicago. The firm now employs more than 7,000 people. And October 1st, it is launching Trust Dream, which it calls the next iteration of the Edelman Trust uh, management. Of course, the Edelman Trust barometer is, uh, is a big part of that, and that's 20 years old as well. Yeah, Craig, um, I'm sure Richard Edelman's appeared at Clinton uh, initiatives over the years, and that trust barometer has been a, a big talking point, hasn't it? What's your perspective on uh, Edelman and its achievements and, and reaching such a milestone? Well, the, the trust barometer is a, is a brilliant idea and a brilliant product, not only from a marketing PR standpoint, but obviously corporations really use it as a measure. So it, it has the benefit of both being uh, good PR and good from a responsibility standpoint. Like I think it's, it speaks to the importance, uh, the increasing importance of PR as an advisor. Richard is an incredible advisor to CEOs and others and how business strategy runs through PR. I, I think we were talking a little while ago in, in some respect, at least in the corporate level, if um, the CEO is the head coach, often the chief communications offer is sort of the point guard, protecting the ball, distributing opportunity, helping others shine, but the whole offense runs through them. So it's not surprising to me that someone like Richard, who does extraordinarily well, is going to see that kind of success. Yeah, for sure. I think the trust barometer has been an incredible piece of IP and it's uh, been a brilliant new business generator. I've turned that into a 12-month yeah, year-round product and uh, always comes up at Davos and and other parts of uh, other other events like the UN. So yeah, well, taking that analogy, I'm struggling a little bit with this one, but the point guard analogy, does that also cover defense? It does when you're protecting the ball. Okay. Uh, yes, it does cover defense. All right. Frank, you have to be um, good on offense and defense. Yeah, teams. so yes. so we like to profile these point guards. And Tara Smith was our newsmaker this month. Intel's uh, head of communications, and 
interesting piece talking about the CHIPS Act and and how they're trying to turn that business around, but also trying to get jobs back into the US. Really timely piece because Tara was talking about, in part, the CHIPS Act. So that's a $280 billion bipartisan bill with the goal of bolstering the domestic production of semiconductors within the United States. And that includes more than $50 billion in direct subsidies and another $24 billion in tax credits. And you look at uh, some of the jobs numbers, uh, that the jobs that Intel has been able to create in the new factories uh, that they have broken ground on or that they've opened, um, and you're talking about 3,000 Intel jobs and 7,000 construction jobs in Ohio, uh, 7,000 construction jobs and an estimated 15,000 indirect jobs in Arizona and and on and on. And it's tens of thousands of jobs when you add it all up. That's a really good story to tell. Now, it's a bit more nuanced than that because it's a really complicated thing talking about microchips and their production. And, um, you know, it goes over people's heads quite easily. And so, um, you know, one thing I, I wondered about reading this was I, I, maybe Intel isn't uh, pushing the jobs angle enough of when they're they're touting their company and everything they're doing because the um, the numbers are astronomical in terms of um, you know the new employees that they're going to have. But it's a it's a really I, I think it was a really interesting look at what a company that is being directly affected by this legislation. Uh, you know what they have to do to build themselves up and to talk about what they're doing publicly. Yeah, and it's interesting because they don't seem to. It doesn't seem to have convinced the markets yet, does it? Their share right. price is still sort of. Um, they've got other challenges as a business, and, and we get into that with Tara. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's bringing jobs to the US. I mean, Craig, that's a massive. That's been a theme for the last five years, and this is actually a way of it happening, isn't it? With with big subsidies, government subsidies, but that's the way economics works these days. And it's uh, we caught up with Tara actually at the groundbreaking in Ohio. So um, that, that project is up and running. Was Yours is more of an international event, isn't it? But well, it's jobs, you know, local jobs is a big issue, isn't it? Uh, jobs everywhere. I mean, uh, one of our whole themes was um, how the CJAC community can help build a global inclusive economic recovery. But a lot of that work is done domestically. You know, there were 144 new commitments uh, made this year on top of the portfolio that we discussed before. Of that, about 1.6 million jobs will be created, many of those in the U.S., when those pledges are fully funded and, and realized. Some of them are, you know, a lot of them are clean energy. Some of them are from the mortgage and the banking sector. We had a whole section on uh, how we diversify ownership. So it's not just that someone is a CEO, but that business owners, how do we get a more diverse pool of business owners? And that'll lead to more jobs and more economies, uh, more economic improvement in the places that we need it. So I think Intel is poised to really do very well. Yeah. Uh, well, um, we'll, we'll be plotting that and seeing how it goes. But yeah, it's, an, it's a fascinating project, bringing lots of investment into the country so and uh, into new jobs. So good luck with that. We talk a lot about employee engagement, don't we, Frank, and uh, how much comms, the comms department is involved. GM had a, an incident around its return to the office comms, which everybody is paying a lot of attention to. Talk us through that one. Yeah, it's sort of a tale of two internal memos. Uh, on Friday, the automaker sends out uh, a memo to staffers saying the corporate workers uh, are going to be required to work in the office at least three days a week starting later this year. Now, according to numerous reports, CNBC and others, there was a backlash to that. And then this week, uh, they followed up by saying that this would not happen 
until next year and that the days of the week that employees had to be in uh, would be up to the employees and would be flexible. So um, they also said that they acknowledged that the timing of the message when they sent it out late on a Friday afternoon was unfortunate and also unintentional. So taking them at their word on that, I mean, I, I would just think, you know, sending out a memo like that on a Friday afternoon never seems to be a good idea. And that's the sort of thing that will create employee backlash in and of itself. So, um, it, it, look, it's it's interesting to see how all of these companies are bringing office workers back. And GM is in an interesting situation because so many of their employees uh, have been on factory floors for you know two well, years now, exactly. year and a half. So it's. Um, <laughs> It's a it's a different look for them than it might be for other companies. Yeah, I wonder what they feel about the whole furore around this when they've been going into work for all through COVID. And uh, yeah, it's interesting number of levels there. Like one timing of memos, you know, you give out good news at the end of the week, and you more challenging stuff at the start of the week. That's it. that's always been the the, the philosophy, hasn't it? And uh, and also how you handle this RTO thing is is. There's no playbook yet, is there? It's everybody's dealing with that. Was that a big theme at uh, CGI? The whole sort of COVID and moving on from COVID. You know, are we through it yet? You know, the President Biden kind of said we were, uh, maybe slightly ill-advisedly on 60 Minutes. Um, but uh, that's a big part of it as well, isn't it? Just the future of work and do people want to work in offices and, and moving forward? Yeah, I think there are two really interesting aspects to it that are challenging in not only CGI, but all of the UN General Assembly week showed is there's a, there's still a tremendous vaccine inequity globally. So to bring people together for the UN, there were naturally people from countries where distribution is still difficult that they don't have access to. And frankly, they don't have access to lots of aspects of healthcare that we take for granted. So that that is a challenge to reckon with. And, you know, I can say from the Clinton Foundation standpoint, I mean, being an organization that works in public health, we've gone slower. You know, the office is open. Our policies, you're welcome and encouraged to be there, but you're not required at this point. And we are trying to keep up with the public health guns. But, you know, one thing we do, and I think we do it well, is is uh, collaborate with our internal teams and make sure we're over communicating, uh, not surprising people with policy changes and making sure we we get a lot of input. But that's how we've always uh, sort of been designed. I will say just in the, the Zoom working world, and for anyone who's produced large events, that really was a challenge, you know, for the most part, trying to work with each other on a very uh, tactile, physical thing that you're producing, but doing it by Zoom was uh, in some ways harder than it had ever been. Um, yeah, there's a, I think there's a benefit to being back together in person, but things have changed and people ain't going back five days a week no, for sure. And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, you, you make a great point there on inequity, health inequity and also climate inequity, right? Developing countries are 15 times more impacted by climate change than first world countries. So sometimes we're sitting here in first world countries and we're not really seeing the full picture, are we? It's much more at the cutting edge of the problem in, in developing countries. So, yeah, that's a good point. Well, there are, there are communities uh, here that are impacted. You know, I mean, there's sure. a there's a uh, domestically you know, as well. domestically. There's a high correlation between, the, you know, places that are disproportionately impacted by climate change and economic inequality and poverty. Yeah. You know, look at the most vulnerable communities. I mean, it, it's not the only example. Cities but without running water. Cities without running water, or even if you go back to New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, the people and the lives that were lost and the property that was damaged were living in areas because 
they couldn't afford to live in other areas. And obviously they hadn't taken climate change seriously. And there was a huge uh, uptick in the disaster uh, or the, the, um, the destructiveness of natural disasters that can be related in many scientists' minds to climate change. And they're all interconnected. Yeah, for sure. On the move. Frank, there's always some, a bit of people news, and this is an interesting one. Visa has hired a new head of communications, um, taken Casey Kavanaugh from AT&T. That's right, a familiar face to our readers. Um, so, yeah, Casey Kavanaugh is going to lead communications at Visa. She is going to be the SVP and chief communications officer at the financial services company. She is succeeding Paul Cohen, who is going to retire after five years of the role, saying on LinkedIn he wants to add more life to the work-life balance equation. Don't we all, Frank? <laughs> so uh, it's the second new gig for Kavanaugh in a year. She started this year as AT&T's chief communications officer. Uh, she's also been at Bacardi Limited, Hyatt Hotels, uh, and Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Yeah, I think we did a newsmaker on her when she was in that uh, role at uh, Starwood, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, a couple of interesting points here. Like one uh, well, Paul Cohen's been at these are a lot longer than five years. He's just been in the top job for right. five years. So she's coming into, and she took over from Larry Solomon at AT and T only in January. And Larry had been there for decades. So she's actually replacing two veterans, and it didn't seem to work out at AT and T. She only lasted uh, seven months before moving to another role. So that's that's an interesting. Don't know the the ins and outs of that. Might just be a coincidence. But, uh, yeah, good luck to Casey in that new job. And then Scott Farrell, he's uh, well-known to us at PR Week from Golan. He's going to get a well-deserved retirement. Yes, and was talking to a chief communications officer the other day who had a lot of good things to say about Scott and will miss working with him. Uh, so uh, Scott Farrell's going to retire. He is going to start working part-time as of October 1st through the end of the year as part of a planned transition. And then he is going to be an advisor to Golan on some client engagements, crises, and new business pitches at the start of the year. They're going to split his role between Tim Peters and Sarah Velazzi, who have more of a regional remit where uh, Peters oversees it for the Midwest and West regions, and Velazzi oversees it for the East Coast region. Okay, well, good luck to Scott, and enjoy if you are indeed retiring or just retiring from Golden, but uh, uh, congrats on a brilliant career. And uh, finally, let's talk about Penta Public Affairs. It's a consortium that's just launched. Yes, a uh, new firm. It's actually six firms coming together, and these are agencies that had been acquired by Falfurious Capital Partners. So coming together are Ballast Research, Hamilton Place Strategies, Flag Media Analytics, Alva, Gotham Research Group, and Decode M. They're going to have a real strategic communications specialty, uh, crisis communications, research and polling, message testing, things like that. Uh, a lot of well-known public affairs hands uh, at Hamilton Place Strategies, Tony Fratto among them, and Jeff Levine, president of Gotham Research Group, is going to be a partner with the new organization as well. So, um, you know, given all the research, uh, given all the investment in the D.C. area over the past couple of years, we'll be interested to see uh, how things shake out for them, for Penta. What's the idea of bringing all those together then? Uh, it seems to be more of a stronger together mentality than owning all of the different parts and uh, putting them together under one direction seems to be the uh, the gist of it. Okay, got it. Craig, um, public affairs is um, burgeoning, isn't it, as a, a field of communications? And I guess you must have lots of interactions with that at the, this, uh, the global initiative. 
Absolutely. CGI, thankfully, has always been a, a platform for companies and organizations to come and take action and talk about what they're doing. But it goes back to the role of communications more broadly, you know, understanding what is coming down the pike for government, both policy and regulation, how things play out. Um, I think on public affairs and political communications are sort of in some ways two sides of the same coin, but it's uh, no longer um, and hasn't been for quite a while something that organizations can avoid. You really have to understand how these things play out. And as um, you know, we've all seen whatever political side of the aisle you're on, politics are, are more part of our daily life than perhaps we ever were conscious of before. And yeah. It takes been, help navigating that. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. We've just been talking about that. I mean, none of these issues, they're not just a, a political climate cuts through every kind of endeavor. I think organizations and corporations and uh, climate, frankly, health, health, diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, we'll be doing more coverage of DC and public affairs generally. So look out for that. I, I will say one thing else about that, Steve. I, I, we have noticed, Trent, I think you've covered this, is that more companies and sectors who hadn't had a DC presence have been investing in a DC presence. And some of that comes through smart public affairs companies like those guys. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And there's some fast growing shops and Penta is obviously looking to uh, double down and capitalize on that. Craig, great to have you on the show and good to hear about the Clinton Global Initiative coming back and good luck with planning for next year, which I'm sure you've already started. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me. And uh, next time I'm going to come armed with uh, better sports analogies. So. No, 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 no. That's my that's my deficit. Uh, I'm the, uh, the Englishman who's uh, not got up to speed with American sports. And uh, uh, that's my bad. Don't, you don't need to worry about that. Frank, always a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, yeah, have a good week. Just a couple of uh, housekeeping announcements. We've got the PR Week Awards. We had the first deadline for that. The final deadline for entries is the 14th of October. So you've got a couple of weeks. Don't miss out on getting your work into the Oscars of the PR industry. Those awards are the ones that matter and then we've got pr decoded also in a couple of weeks in chicago it's all about purpose and the evolution of and the purpose awards which we'll be giving out on the tuesday night in the uh, after day one i'm really looking forward to that being back in person with you few tickets still left if you want to join us we'd love to see you there 40 under 40 our big celebration one of the best nights of the year that's on the 27th of october in new york city and the hall of fame we talked about our 2022 uh, honorees and uh, we'll be celebrating them on the 5th of December again in New York City but that's all we've got time for we'll see you next time on the PR Week Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week to find more episodes visit prweek.com